You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Transforming the Soul, Volume 2. It was originally entitled Metamorphosis of the Soul. And this is translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnim and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. Lecture 5, entitled Sickness and Healing, given on the 3rd of March, 1910. It has probably become clear to those people who attended more or less regularly the lectures I had the opportunity to give here this winter, that this lecture cycle has dealt with a series of radical questions concerning the soul. Today's lecture about sickness and healing will continue in the same direction. What spiritual science can say about the relevant facts regarding the course of life insofar as these are only physical expressions of spiritual causes, was explained here in earlier lectures, for example, titled Understanding Sickness and Death, titled Illusory Illness, and titled The Feverish Pursuit of Health. Today we shall be dealing with significantly deeper questions regarding an understanding of sickness and healing. Sickness and either a cure or a fatal outcome of an illness, do of course have drastic effects on human life. As it has always been our way to look into all the preconditions, the spiritual foundations underlying what we present here, we shall now do the same with regard to these radical facts and experiences of human existence. In other words, we will look into what spiritual science has to say regarding sickness and healing. This will, of course, necessitate our looking deeply once again into the meaning of how human life unfolds, so as to clarify how illness, health, death, and healing stand in relation to the normal course of life. For basically these phenomena do seem to insert themselves into the normal course of human development. Do they, perhaps, contribute something to our development? Do they, in fact, advance or retard our development? We can only reach a clear conception of these events if here, too, we take the whole of the human being into account. We have often said here that the latter consists of four members. First, the physical body, which human beings have in common with all the mineral entities of their environment that take their form from the physical and chemical forces within them. The second member of the human being we have always called the etheric life body, and in the way we speak of it, human beings have this in common with all living things, that is, with the plant and animal beings of our environment. Then we spoke of the astral body as the third member of the human being. This is the bearer of pleasure and sadness, joy and pain, of all the emotions, mental images, thoughts, and so on, which stream through us all day, Human beings have their astral body in common only with the animal world. 
And then we have always included the highest ranking member of the human being, which makes man the crown of creation, the bearer of his ego, his ego consciousness. When we consider these four members, we can say in the first instance that even to a casual view, there are undeniable differences between them. The physical body is there in front of us if we look at ourselves from outside. The outer physical sense organs can observe the physical body. With the thinking that is connected to these organs, the thinking that is tied to the instrument of the brain, we can understand this human physical body. It is visible, therefore, to outer observation. The relation to our astral body is quite different. We know from previous descriptions that the astral body is only an outer fact, so to speak, for genuine clairvoyant consciousness. The latter can see the astral body in a similar way as the physical one, only by schooling the consciousness, as has been frequently described. In ordinary life, the astral body is not observable from the outside. The eye can only see the outer expression of the instincts, desires, passions, thoughts, feelings, and so on, which surge through it. And I was spelled E-Y-E. However, human beings can observe within themselves these astral experiences. They observe what we call instincts, desires, passions, joy and pain, pleasure and sadness. So we can say that the relationship between the astral and the physical body is such that in normal life we observe the former internally and the latter externally. Now in a certain sense, the other two members of the human being the etheric body and the bearer of the ego, are situated in between these two extremes. The etheric body is the intermediary member between the physical and the astral body. It cannot be perceived from outside, but it affects the outside and does so in the following way. The forces and inner experiences alive in the astral body have first of all to be transferred to the etheric body on their way to acting on the physical instrument, the physical body. The ether body acts as an intermediary between the astral and the physical body, forming a link between outside and inside. We can no longer see it with physical eyes, but what we do see with physical eyes is an instrument of the astral body only because the etheric body acts toward the outside, into the physical body. What we call the human ego, in a certain sense, also acts from the inside in an outer direction, whilst the etheric body acts more from the outside inward to the astral body. For it is by means of the ego, and the way it affects the astral body, that human beings acquire knowledge of the outer world, of their physical environment, from which the physical body itself originates. Animal life proceeds without any individual personal knowledge of itself, because the animal does not have a personal ego. Animals experience within themselves what goes on in the astral body, but they do not make use of their pleasure and sadness, sympathy and antipathy, to gain knowledge of the outer world. What we call pleasure and sadness, joy and pain, sympathy and antipathy, are in animals all expressions of the astral body, 
But animals do not turn their pleasure into a celebration of the beauty of the world, but remain within the element that brings about their well-being. And animals live immediately within their pain, whereas pain leads human beings out and beyond themselves into an enlightenment with regard to the world, because the ego takes them out of themselves again and unites them with the outer world. So we see how, on the one hand, the etheric body points inward to the astral body, whereas the ego leads into the outside world, into our surrounding physical environment. We have often pointed out that human beings lead a life that alternates, and we can observe this every day. From the moment of waking up in the morning, a person's soul life shows evidence of the experiences of the astral body, emotions, thoughts, and so on, that flow through it. And at night we realize that these experiences are submerged in an indeterminate darkness, as the astral body and ego pass into an unconscious or, should we say, subconscious state. We have also pointed out why human beings go through these alternating conditions. When we look at a human being whilst awake, the physical body, etheric body, astral body and ego are all combined and mutually affect one another. When the person is asleep, an occult consciousness can see that the physical and etheric bodies remain in bed and that the astral body and ego, on withdrawing from the physical and etheric bodies, return to their actual home, the spiritual world. We will now describe this in somewhat different terms to enable us to understand today's investigations. The physical body, which only presents us with its outward aspect, goes during sleep into the physical world and takes with it the etheric body, the mediator, between that outer world and the inner one. This is why in the sleeping human being there can be no mediating between what is outside and what is inside, because the etheric body, the mediator, has gone into the outside world. Therefore we can, in a certain way, say that in the sleeping human being the physical and etheric body are merely the outer human being, we could even describe the physical and etheric body as the, quote, outer human being, close quote, per se, even though the etheric body is the mediator between outer and inner. On the other hand, the astral body and ego can, when we are asleep, be called the inner human being. These terms are also true of the waking human being because all that the astral body experiences under normal conditions, are inner experiences. And what the ego acquires in the way of knowledge from the outer world in waking life is taken up inwardly by the human being to be assimilated as learning. What is outside is internalized by the ego. All this shows us that it is possible to speak of an outer and an inner man, the former consisting of physical and etheric body, the latter of ego and astral body. Now let us ask why all this happens and what it signifies in the course of a normal person's life. Why do human beings return with their astral body and ego to the spiritual world every night? What is the reason why we go to sleep? 
These matters have been touched on before, but they are essential for today's topic. The normal conditions have to be understood first in order to recognize the apparently abnormal natural laws that manifest in sickness and healing. Why do we go to sleep every night? We can understand this only if we have a look at the whole way the astral body and ego relate to what we have called the outer man. We have said that the astral body is the bearer of our thoughts, emotions and urges. So why is it that at night human beings do not experience these astral qualities at all, when our actual inner man is a whole in itself, in the absence of physical and etheric body? Why do these experiences sink down into indeterminate darkness? The reason is that the astral body and ego, although they are the bearer of these experiences, do not have these experiences coming to them directly. In living our life, the astral body and ego are, under normal conditions, dependent on being in the physical and etheric body in order to have an awareness of these experiences. Our astral body does not experience our soul life directly, for if it were so, then we would also experience it at night when we remain united with our astral body. Our daytime soul life is like an echo or a mirror image. The physical and etheric body reflect for us the experiences of our astral body. Our soul can conjure up for us all that it does from the moment of waking until we fall asleep only because it sees its own experiences in the mirror of the physical and etheric body. The moment we leave the physical and etheric body at night, although we still have in us all the experiences of the astral body, we are no longer conscious of them, because in order to be conscious of them, the reflecting effect of the physical and etheric body is required. We have seen then that in our whole life of waking up in the morning and going to sleep at night, there is an alternation between the inner and the outer man between the ego and astral body on the one side and the physical and etheric body on the other. The forces which are at work here are the forces of the astral body and the ego. For under no circumstances could the physical body, as the sum of physical attributes, bring forth our soul life out of itself, and neither could the etheric body. The forces that produce the reflection come from the astral body and ego in the same way as an image we see in a mirror does not originate in the mirror, but in the object we see reflected. Thus all the forces that make up our soul life are seated in the astral body and ego, in the inner man, and they become active in the interaction between the inner and the outer world. All day long there is active work going on in the soul, constant interaction, and a streaming outward toward the physical and etheric body. But, as evening approaches, we see these soul forces passing into the state we call tiredness. They become run down, used up, and we would be unable to go on living if we were not in a position to go each night to a world different from the one we inhabit from morning till evening. 
in the world we live in from morning till evening, we can, so to speak, display our soul life, conjure it up before us. The forces of the astral body enable us to do this. But we exhaust them in the process and cannot replenish them out of our waking life. We can only replenish them from out of the spiritual world to which we return every night, and that is why we go to sleep. We could not stay alive without returning to the world of night and fetching the forces which we use up between morning and evening. This is the answer to the question as to what we bring into the physical world when we re-enter our etheric and physical body. But do we not also take something from the physical world into the world of night? That is the second question, and it is as important as the first. In order to answer this question, we have to go in greater detail into certain things well known to us in life. We do, of course, experience things in life, and these happenings pass through a remarkable process. To show you how this process works, I will give you an example that has often been mentioned here, the example of learning to write. When we put pen to paper to express our thoughts, we practice the art of writing. We can write, but what were the conditions that enabled us to do so? These necessitated that during a certain period of our lives, we went through a whole series of experiences. Just think of all the things you went through as a child, from the first clumsy attempts to hold the pen, put it to paper, and so on, in order to become capable of writing down what you wanted to convey. You may well say, thank God you do not have to remember all you went through. For it would be dreadful if every time we did some writing we had to recall all the unsuccessful attempts at doing the strokes, perhaps also the punishments we were given, in order to acquire the art of writing. What has actually occurred? We have been through a real process of development and had a whole series of experiences. These experiences went on over a long time but they then flow together, form an extract, which we call the ability, in quotes, to write, and the rest of them sink down into the indeterminate shadow of forgetfulness. But there is no need to remember them, because our soul has gone up a level in the process. This is one example of how our memories flow together into extracts, essences, which appear in life as our competence, our skills and abilities. This is the way we develop in the course of life. Experiences are transformed initially into abilities of the soul, which can then, of course, be expressed through the instrumentation of our physical body. All our personal experiences throughout our life take place in such a manner that they are transformed into abilities or also into what we call wisdom. We can acquire an insight into how this transformation takes place if we look at the period of time between 70, 1770 and 1815. A significant historical event took place during this period. A large number of people were contemporaries of this event. How did they respond to it? Some of them passed them by and did not even notice them being passive. They did not turn these events into knowledge, wisdom of the world. Others assimilated the essence of them 
and acquired profound wisdom to enrich their lives. How are experiences transformed into abilities and wisdom? They are transformed by being taken in the form in which we receive them into our sleep every night, into those spheres where the soul or the inner man resides during the night. It is here that the experiences we have over a period of time are changed into extracts. Any observer of life knows that if we are to master a series of experiences and coordinate them into a particular activity, it is necessary to transform these experiences in periods of sleep. For example, a thing is best learned by heart by learning it, sleeping on it, learning it again, and sleeping on it again. If we are not able to immerse the experiences in sleep, so that they can emerge as abilities or in the form of wisdom or art, then they will not be developed. This is the expression on a higher level of what we are faced with as necessity on a lower one. This year's plants cannot become next year's plants if they do not return to the dark lap of the earth in order to grow again the following year. Here, development remains repetition. In the human realm, as we have shown, it is real development. The experiences are immersed in the nocturnal lap of the unconscious and are then brought forth again, initially still as repetition, but eventually they will have been transformed to such an extent that they can emerge as wisdom, capacities, and as life experience. This is how life was understood in times when it was still possible to look more deeply into the spiritual worlds than external observation is capable of doing today. This is why in times when leaders in the realm of ancient cultures needed to express special matters in pictures, we see indications of these remarkable principles of human life. Let us ask ourselves what people would do if they wanted to prevent a series of daytime experiences from lighting up in their souls and being transformed into one or another capacity. What, for example, happens in the case of someone who has a certain relationship with another person over a period of time? These experiences descend into the nighttime consciousness and arise again out of it as love for the other person, which, if it is healthy, is an essence, as it were, of the successive experiences. The feeling of love for the other person has come about through the sum of the experiences having streamed together into an extract, as though woven into a fabric. What would people have to do to prevent a series of experiences turning into love? They would have to take the special measure of undoing the natural process which at night turns their experiences into an essence, into the feeling of love. They would have to unravel again at night the fabric of daytime experiences. And if they can manage to do this, they would be exempted from the process that was all set to transform into love the feelings they felt for the other person. Homer was alluding to these depths of human soul life when he presented the picture of Penelope and her suitors. She promises each one that she will marry him after she has completed a certain fabric. 
She manages to avoid having to keep her promise only by unraveling each night what she has woven during the day. Tremendous depths of experience are revealed when the seer is also an artist. Today there is little feeling for these things, and interpretations of this kind are considered whimsical or even sheer illusion. This can harm neither the ancient poets nor truth, but at most only the people of our present time, who are then prevented from entering into the depths of human life. Thus something is taken along by the soul at night, which we then bring back again. We take up what the soul develops during life and raises to ever higher levels of ability. But we feel the need to ask where the limit is to this kind of human development. We can recognize this limit if we observe that human beings, when they wake up in the morning, always return to the same physical and etheric bodies that have the abilities and potential and inner configuration that they were equipped with at birth. Human beings cannot alter these. If we were able to take the physical, or at least the etheric body, into sleep with us, then we would be able to change them. But in the morning we find them as we left them. Here there is a clear limit to what can be achieved in the way of development between birth and death. This development is essentially restricted to soul experience and cannot extend to bodily experience. We just have to realize that for all the opportunities people might have to go through experiences in the world that could deepen their musical ability and awaken in their soul a profound involvement with music, this development could not happen if they did not have a musical ear. If the physical, etheric formation of their ear did not permit them to establish harmony between the outer and the inner man. We have to understand that in order for us human beings to be a whole, all the members of our being have to form a unity, be in harmony. This is why all the opportunities people with an unmusical ear might have in the way of experience that could enable them to rise to a higher level of musical experience have to remain in their soul and cannot be incorporated because the boundaries are set each morning by the structure and form of their internal organs. These things are not dependent merely on the rougher structures of the physical and etheric bodies, but on the much finer configurations. Every soul capacity in our current normal life has to find expression in an organ, and if the organ is not formed to correspond, then this cannot happen. This all hinges on things that cannot be proved by anatomy and physiology. The subtle sculpting of these organs is precisely what is incapable of transformation between birth and death. Are human beings, then, completely powerless to transfuse into their physical and etheric bodies the experiences they take up in their astral body and ego? We do realize, of course, that when we observe people, we see that they can, to a certain extent, alter the form of their physical body. You only need to look at people who have spent ten years of their lives on inner work that has involved thinking profoundly. Their gestures and physiognomy will have changed. But this occurs within very strict limits. Is this always the case? 
that this is not always confined to the narrowest of limits can only be understood if we refer to a law which we have often mentioned here, but which needs to be frequently recalled because it is so alien to our present time, a law which can be compared with another one, one which, on a lower level, became an established fact for humanity in the 17th century. Up until the 17th century, it was believed that the lower animals, insects, etc., could originate from river mud. People believed that matter alone produced earthworms and insects. And it was not only laymen that believed this, but also scholars. If we go back to earlier times, we find that there were systems laid down as to what people had to do to produce life in their environment. There is a book from the 7th century A.D. which describes how the carcass of a horse has to be beaten tender in order to create bees. And likewise hornets were obtained from oxen and wasps from donkeys. It was not until the 17th century that the eminent scientist Francesco Redi also produced the axiom, quote, life can only arise from life, close quote. Because of this truth, which is taken as self-evident today, so that nobody would find it comprehensible that anything else could ever have been believed, Reddy was considered at that time to be such a dreadful heretic that he barely escaped the fate of Giordano Bruno. It is always like this with such truths. At first, those that proclaimed them were branded as heretics and fell prey to the Inquisition. In those times people were burned or threatened with burning. Nowadays this has been given up and people are no longer burned. But those today who sit on the curule chair of science regard as fools and dreamers all those who proclaim a new truth which is on a higher level than that. Um, readers aside, there's a word here, curule. Uh, it's spelled C-U-R-U-L-E. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, end of readers aside. People who today present in a new form the axiom regarding living things, which Francesco Redi put forward in the 17th century, are indeed considered mad. Redi pointed out that it is inexact observation that leads to believing that life can originate directly from lifeless matter, and that it must be traced back to similar living matter, to the embryo which draws its substance and strength from the environment. And in a similar way, someone who speaks from spiritual science must show that the sole spiritual part of us that enters existence at birth must originate from the element of soul and spirit and is not just assembled out of inherited characteristics. Just as the embryonic form of the earthworm draws on the matter of its environment to develop, our soul-spiritual part has, similarly, to draw on the substances of its environment to develop. In other words, if we follow the soul-spiritual kernel of the human being back from whence it came, we arrive at an earlier soul and spirit being which existed before birth and which has nothing to do with heredity. The axiom that the soul-spiritual element can only arise from the soul-spiritual element 
entails in the last instance the axiom of repeated earth lives, of which a close study of spiritual science can convince us. Our life between birth and death leads back to other lives, which we went through in earlier times. Soul and spirit comes from soul and spirit, and the causes of our present experiences between birth and death lie in what took place in soul and spirit in the past. And when we pass through the gate of death, we take with us what we assimilated in this life as the transformation of causes into abilities. This we return with when we enter a future existence through birth. Between death and rebirth, we are in different circumstances than when we enter the spiritual world each evening in sleep, from which we wake up again in the morning. When we wake up in the morning, we find our physical and etheric bodies as we left them the previous evening. We cannot weave into them the experiences we have in our daily life, because in their state of being complete, they present a barrier to this. But when we enter the spiritual world through death, we lay aside the physical and etheric body, retaining only the essence of the etheric body. Now we are no longer under the necessity of taking account of an existing physical and etheric body. And during the whole period between death and rebirth, we can work with purely spiritual forces in a world of purely spiritual substance. We take from the spiritual world what we require to create the archetype of our new physical and etheric body, and into these we weave all the things we could not weave into our previous physical and etheric body. Then the moment arrives when this archetype is completed, and we have the ability to introduce into our new physical and etheric body what we have prepared in our archetypal image. The archetypal image will then continue to work during the periods of sleep. If human beings were able to bring with them their physical and etheric body each morning on waking up, then they would be able to form them from out of the spiritual world. But they would also have to transform them. In the case of birth, however, human beings do awaken from a sleep, which does indeed include the physical and etheric body. And now, When the astral body and the ego descend into the physical world, they can, on entering the physical and etheric body, sculpt everything into these, including all that they could not form into the completed bodies of the previous life. Now in a new life, they can express in their physical and etheric body the greater heights they can attain, but which they could not attain in their previous life, because their physical and etheric body prevented them from doing so. Thus we see that birth is indeed a waking up out of the spiritual world, but one in which we bring with us other forces than those we bring with us when we wake up out of this same spiritual world in the morning. In the morning we bring along only those forces our soul can acquire between birth and death. We are unable to work on the other members of our being. But when we return from existence in the spiritual world through the gate of birth, we bring along forces that can work right into our new physical and etheric body, that is, forces which encompass an aspect of our nature 
which includes physical and etheric body. In the physical, if the physical and etheric body could not be destroyed, and the physical body were unable to go through death, we could not include our experiences in our development. However much we regard death with fear and horror and feel anxious and fearful about our own death, an objective view of the world teaches us that we should actually want it to happen. For death alone gives us the opportunity for the body to be destroyed so that we can build up a new one in the next incarnation and can bring into our lives all the fruits of our earthly existence. Thus, in the normal course of humankind's evolution, there are two streams working together, an inner and an outer one, which we see alongside one another in the physical and the etheric body on the one side and the astral body and ego on the other. What can human beings do in the course of their lives where the physical and etheric bodies are concerned? Not only is the astral body worn down by the life of the soul, but this also happens to the organs of the physical and etheric body. Observation shows that while the astral body is in the spiritual world during the night, it also works on the physical and etheric body to restore them to their normal state. It is only in sleep that what has been destroyed during the day in the physical and etheric body can be restored. So we see that constructive work is of course also being done on the physical and etheric body from out of the spiritual world. Yet there are limits to this. The basic layout and the structure of the physical and etheric bodies are established at birth. And within narrow limits they remain the same. In world evolution, two streams are, as it were, working alongside one another, which we cannot easily bring into harmony. If someone were to try to combine these two streams in abstract reflection, that is, if anyone wanted light-heartedly to create a philosophy saying that people have to be harmonious, that would be making a great mistake. Life does not function according to abstractions. Life works in such a way that abstract visions like these can only be achieved after long periods of development. The way life works is that it creates states of equilibrium, harmony, only after disharmonies have been gone through. This is how living interaction takes place in human beings. And indeed, it is not meant to be made to harmonize merely in thought. It is always an indication of abstract arid thinking, if we imagine harmony where life has to develop toward points of balance by passing through disharmony. It is the fate of human development that we have to see harmony as a future goal, which we will not attain if we merely imagine it exists at any given stage of human development. So we may perhaps understand it when we hear it said in spiritual science that life looks different depending on whether we regard it from the point of view of the inner or the outer man. These are two different viewpoints, and anyone who wanted to unite these two aspects abstractly would be overlooking the fact that there is not just one ideal, one opinion, but as many opinions as there are points of view, and that it is only when these different opinions, judgments, 
work together that we reach the truth. Therefore, we can assume that the way we see life from the point of view of the inner man might be different than from the point of view of the outer man. We can give a comparison to show that truths are relative and depend on the aspect from which they are seen. It may be appropriate for a giant whose sleeve is several meters long to talk of laughing up his sleeve. But whether a dwarf whose sleeve is only millimeters long can say of a giant that he is laughing up his sleeve is another matter. Things act of necessity as complementary truths. There is no absolute truth with regard to outer things. They have to be looked at from all sides, and we have to find the truth by seeing how truths individually illuminate one another. This is why the outer man, physical and etheric body, and the inner man, astral body and ego, as we see them in life in any given period, need not be in total harmony. If there were complete harmony, then the situation would be such that when human beings return to the spiritual world at night, they would take their daytime experiences with them and transform them systematically into the essences of abilities, wisdom, and so on. And the situation would also be such that the forces they brought with them out of the spiritual world into the physical world in the morning would be used for their soul life. But the limits which are described as applying to the physical body would never be crossed. And there would also be no human development. Human beings have to learn to take note of these limitations themselves. They have to form a judgment about them. The possibility has to be there for them to breach these limits to the greatest possible extent. And they breach them continually. In real life these limits are crossed continually. So that, for example, the astral body and the ego when they affect the physical body, do not keep within the limits. But in doing so, they breach the laws of the physical body. We then observe such breaches as irregularities, as states of disorganization of the physical body, as the occurrence of illness caused by the spiritual part, the astral body and the ego. Limits can also be breached in other ways, namely that our inner man does not manage to correlate with the outer world, failing to harmonize fully with it. This can be shown in a dramatic example. When, some years ago, the well-known eruption of Mount Pele took place in Central America, some amazing documents were found afterward in the ruins, which were very telling. One of them said, quote, You do not need to be afraid anymore, for all the dangers are past. There will be no more eruptions. We have discovered the natural laws which tell us this. Close quote. These documents, which stated that further volcanic eruptions were impossible according to natural scientific knowledge, had been buried. And along with them the scholars, who had written these documents from out of their common knowledge as scholars, had also been buried. This was a tragic event. But it was an actual demonstration of the disharmony of human beings with the physical world. There could be no doubt that the intelligence of the scholars who investigated these natural laws, if it had been properly schooled, would have been adequate for finding the truth. 
for they were not lacking in intelligence. But although intelligence is necessary, it is insufficient on its own. If animals are faced with such catastrophes, they make haste to depart. That is a well-known fact. Only domestic animals perish along with the human beings. So-called animal instinct is therefore adequate for supplying a far greater wisdom, as far as coming events are concerned, than the level of human wisdom today. Intelligence, in quotes, is not the decisive factor. Our current intelligence level is present also in those who commit the greatest follies. Intelligence, therefore, is not lacking. What is lacking is sufficiently matured experience of events. As soon as our intelligence determines something that seems plausible to it, according to our limited experience, it can fall into disharmony with the real outer events, and then outer events break down around us. For there is a relationship between our physical body and the world, which human beings will gradually learn to recognize with the forces they already possess today. But this will only happen after they have gathered one experience after another from the outer world and thoroughly assimilated them. Then the harmony, which will have arisen as a result of this experience, will have come about entirely with the help of the intelligence we have today. For it is precisely at the present time that our intelligence has reached a kind of peak. What is lacking is the maturing of experience. If this ripening of experience does not correspond with what is outside, then human beings will fall into disharmony with the outer world and can break under it. We have seen in an extreme example how the disharmony arose between the physical body of the scholars concerned and the stage which they had reached in soul development. This kind of disharmony occurs not only when momentous events happen to us, but arises in principle wherever any harm comes to our physical and etheric body, and we are not capable of counteracting it with our inner forces and holding it at bay. This applies in every case, whether it is outwardly visible or is an inner disorder, which in reality comes from outside. For if we have an upset stomach, it is essentially the same as if a brick were to fall on our head. This is what happens when we allow a conflict to arise between the inner man and what comes to us from outside, when the inner man is no match for the outer man. Fundamentally, every illness is a disharmony between, a breaching of the division between the inner and the outer man. What is created by the continual breaching of these divisions will become harmony only in the far distant future. And this remains an abstraction if our thinking tries to impose it on our life. Human beings only learn to become more and more mature in their inner life by gradually realizing that at this present stage they are not yet up to coping with outer life. This is true not only of the ego but also of the astral body. Those things that are penetrated by the ego are experienced by human beings between waking up and going to sleep. Whereas the way their astral body is able to breach its limits and is impotent to create proper harmony between the inner and the outer man lies outside normal human consciousness. 
It is present nevertheless. All these things give rise to the deep inner nature of illness. What are the two possible outcomes of illness? Either a healing comes about or the illness terminates in death. In the way we regard the normal course of life, we can place death on one side and healing on the other. What does healing signify for the whole development of a human being? First of all, we must clarify what sickness means in a person's whole evolution. Sickness represents disharmony between the inner and the outer man. When there is illness, the inner man cannot achieve harmony with the outer man. The inner man withdraws in a way from the outer one. The simplest example of this is cutting a finger. We can only cut the physical body, not the astral. But the astral body is constantly engaged in the usual activities taking place in the body. And in consequence of the cut, the astral body does not find what it would expect to find when it tries to penetrate into the minutest parts. It feels pushed out. That, in essence, is how it is with a whole number of illnesses. The inner man feels pushed back from the outer part and cannot engage in its life because the damage that has been done to it bars the way. What we can do is either to restore the damage through outer means or boost the strength of the inner man to such an extent that it is able to heal the outer man. Then a connection between inside and outside will be restored to a lesser or greater extent meaning that the inner man will find the degree to which it can work again in the mended outer part. This is a process that can be compared to waking up. It was an unnatural withdrawal of the inner man, after which it is again possible to experience in the outer man what can only be experienced in the outer world. Healing enables us to return and bring into our outer nature what we could not bring it if we could not return. The healing process, therefore, when assimilated, becomes an integral part of the inner man. Healing is something we can look back on with satisfaction, because in a similar manner that sleep helps our inner being to progress, healing gives us something that enables our inner man to progress. Even if it is not immediately visible, our inner soul being makes progress in every instance where there is a cure. In sleep we take with us into the spiritual world the things we have acquired through being cured. Therefore a cure is something that strengthens us as far as the forces we develop in sleep are concerned. All these thoughts on the mysterious relationship between healing and sleep could be developed in full if there were time, but it can nevertheless be seen how healing can be equated with what we take into the spiritual world at night, and that, and that which brings progress into our processes of development insofar as they can be helped to progress at all between birth and death. These things, however, which in normal life we absorb into ourselves from external experiences, are bound to come to expression in our soul life between birth and death as higher development. But not everything which is acquired through healing emerges again 
We can also just as well take it through the gate of death and it can be of benefit to us in our next life. But what spiritual science shows us is that we have to be thankful each time we are healed for each cure signifies an enhancement of our inner being which can only be achieved by way of the forces we have assimilated inwardly. The other question is, what is the significance for human beings of an illness which terminates in death? In a certain way it signifies the opposite, namely that we are not capable of restoring the balance that has been disturbed between the inner and the outer man, that we cannot in the right way cross the frontier between the inner and the outer man in this life. Just as we have to accept our unchanged, healthy body when we wake up in the morning, we have to accept our unchanged, damaged body when an illness ends in death, for we have been incapable of changing it. The healthy body remains as it is and receives us in the morning. The damaged body can no longer receive us, and we have to end in death. We have to leave the body because we are no longer able to re-establish its harmony. On the other hand, we can now take our experiences into the spiritual world without them having to pass through the outer body. The fruits that we gain as a result of our damaged body no longer receiving us become an enrichment for our life between death and a new birth. So, We have also to be grateful to an illness which ends in death because it gives us the opportunity to enhance the life between death and a new birth and to gather together the forces and the experiences which can only mature during that period. Thus we see the consequences for the soul of illnesses which end in death and those which conclude by being cured. That presents us with two aspects. We can be thankful for an illness that ends in being healed because we have been strengthened in our inner life. And we can be thankful for an illness that ends in death because we know that when we raise ourselves to a higher level in the life between death and a new birth, death will be of great significance for us because we will have learned from it that our body must be different when we construct it for the future and we will avoid the harmful aspects that caused us to fail before. The healing process contributes to progress of our inner life, whereas death influences our development with regard to the outer world. The necessity, therefore, arises to see things from two different points of view. No one should imagine that spiritual science is saying that because we ought to be grateful to an illness that ends in death, for giving us help for our next life, we should therefore permit an illness to end in death and not make any attempt at a cure. To think that would not be in the true spirit of spiritual science, which is not concerned with abstractions but with truths that are arrived at from different points of view. It is our duty to make every attempt to try to cure the illness. To undertake to bring healing to the best of our ability is embedded in human consciousness. For the view that when death has occurred it is something to be grateful for is not one which is present in ordinary human consciousness but can only be acquired by transcending it. 
from the, quote, standpoint of the gods, close quote, it is justified to let an illness end in death. From the human standpoint, the only thing that is justified is to do everything to bring about healing. An illness that ends in death has to be judged from a different point of view. Initially, these two views are irreconcilable and have to continue side by side. Any abstract harmony is of no use. Spiritual science has to advance to a recognition of the fact that some truths show us one particular aspect of life and others show us another. To say, quote, a cure is a good thing, healing is a duty, close quote, is right. But it is also right to say, death is a good thing when it occurs as the result of illness. Death is beneficial for overall human development. Although these statements contradict one another, both of them contain living truths which can be recognized by living knowledge. It is just in such cases where we see truths shining in from two directions, ones that still await being harmonized, that we are able to see the error of thinking in stereotypes and the necessity to observe life in the broadest possible way. We have to be clear about the fact that so-called contradictions, when they come from experience and a deeper knowledge of the matter, do not get in the way of our really knowing, but lead us gradually to a living grasp of things, because life itself is developing toward harmony. Normal life moves on in such a way that we form abilities from our experiences, and the things we cannot assimilate between birth and death we weave into a fabric which we can then assimilate between death and a new birth. Healing and terminal illness intertwine with our normal course of life in such a manner that every cure is a contribution to raising human beings to higher levels and every fatal illness, too, leads a human being to a higher level, in the one case with regard to the inner man and in the other with regard to the outer man. So the world progresses carried not by one stream, but by two opposing ones. It is precisely through sickness and healing that the complexities of human life become visible. If it were not for sickness and healing, human beings' normal life would consist of being tied to leading strings and never going beyond these limits. And between death and rebirth they would have to be given the forces to build up their new organism. In such a situation, human beings would never be able to harvest the fruits of their own efforts in the course of world evolution. In the narrow confines of life, human beings can only gather these fruits because they can err. For only by learning what error is can truth be arrived at. To acquire truth in such a way that it activates the soul and influences our development can happen only if it is extracted from the native soil of error. Human beings could also have a kind of health if they did not break through the frontiers in life with their errors and imperfections. But the kind of health that arises in the same way as does truth when it is inwardly recognized, the kind for which human beings wrestle from one incarnation to another with their own life, such health only comes about by means of working through real mistakes, through illnesses, 
That is, human beings learn, on the one hand, to overcome their actual mistakes and errors through being healed. And on the other hand, in the life between death and a rebirth, by knocking up against just those mistakes that they were not able to rectify in one life, they learn to put these right in their next life. We can now pick up again on our dramatic example and say, those scholars who made such a wrong prophecy will not only become more cautious in their reasoning powers with regard to avoiding jumping to conclusions, but they will allow their experiences to mature in order, in course of time, to work in harmony with life. So we see how healing and sickness affect human life and show us that without them, human beings could never arrive at their own goal in life. We learn that seemingly abnormal interferences in our development, among which we can reckon illness, healing, and a fatal end to illness, are all part of our existence, as well as being able to err if our aim is to recognize truth. We could say the same about sickness and healing as a great poet belonging to an important era said about human error, quote, the striving human being errs. This might, close quote, this might give the impression that what the poet really wanted to say was, quote, a human being always errs, close quote. The statement is, however, reversible. And we could say, quote, human beings will have to go on striving as long as they err, close quote. Errors give rise to renewed striving. The statement, quote, the striving human being errs, close quote, need not therefore fill us with despair, for every error produces new striving, and human beings will continue to strive until they have re- superseded them. In other words, the error itself leads beyond itself to human truth. And similarly, it can be said, quote, human beings face the possibility of becoming ill as long as they are in the course of development. Through illness, they are at the same. They at the same time acquire health. Thus, illness points beyond itself, either when it is cured or when it leads to death, producing health not as something alien to man, but as something that is born out of human nature itself and is in full accordance with it. Everything making its appearance in such remarkable and significant areas is certainly intended to show us that the whole world, in its wisdom, is so arranged that human beings are given the opportunity at every crucial point in their development to grow beyond themselves, in exactly the same sense as the saying of Angelus Silesius, with which we were able to conclude our lecture entitled What is Mysticism? On that occasion, we were referring to a more intimate aspect of development, This time we can extend its meaning to the whole field of sickness and healing and say that in this respect, too, we can see in truth that, quote, if you transcend yourself in God's prevailing, then in your spirit ascension will reign, close quote, the end of Lecture 5.